We sometimes talk about the teenage brain as being kind of in the moment, not thinking ahead. But when the person's homeless, they very much are caught in the present because there are such urgent and such basic needs that have to be dealt with right away. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. We are back to explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada. With me from the University of Western, we have Cheryl Florchuk. Thanks for taking this time. Happy to do so. Cheryl, you're uh, an accomplished author, a researcher, someone with uh, your hands in a lot of different places, nursing, but homelessness. Where, Where does your passion for this topic come from? Well, it's sometimes we get topics that find us. Uh, I'm sure you've had that experience. As uh, as a nurse, I always worked in psychiatric and mental health nursing, which is certainly a population overrepresented in the homeless population. And I consider that group to also include issues related to substance abuse. And having been a nurse for a long time, I actually remember when we didn't have a homeless problem. I remember when things started suddenly shifting. I was doing a study in six Ontario hospitals. Prior to that, if we had a patient from our hospital discharged to homelessness, we had to fill out an incident report, the same as um, a patient assault. And when I was in these six hospitals, we were looking at discharge processes. I was finding across all six areas, people were being discharged to homeless shelters and into homelessness. This was back in the late 90s. I'm thinking like, what the heck's going on here? And then as I was pondering that, I had our local shelter call in London, where I work, call and say, we've been having this problem with a lot of men with mental health problems showing up. We don't know what to do. Do you mind if we can meet, think of programming, how to evaluate it? Within the same month, another call from a poverty association. And if I didn't get the message by then, I actually ended up with a friend of my son, who at the time was only in grade nine, uh, who became homeless when his mother, who had schizophrenia, became homeless. She found some temporary housing and he found a spot frequently in my basement. So clearly that things were shifting and people with mental illnesses of various kinds were being disproportionately impacted. So I I started uh, studying that and trying to understand what the heck was going on and what the heck could we do about it. So you said that there was a time where you can recall there wasn't a homeless problem, but there was still homelessness, right? It was nowhere near what we had. And as and when I say that it was rare to discharge to homelessness, like I recall once we had two times in a single year, someone discharged into homelessness and we had a big meeting of the senior staff to try to figure out what, what are we going to do about that? When I looked at that um, a decade later in London and I was working with the shelter data And the data from the hospital, we were actually found at that point, it was happening 200 times in a year. So things shifted. Uh, And as I put in my paper, what we found was the shift was essentially a policy shift or policy shifts, plural, uh, in multiple areas that in some ways created a perfect storm. Let's dig into that a little bit. What sort of policies have been most noticeably uh, correlating to uh, this homeless problem based on your research? In the uh, Globe and Mail article that I know that we had talked about and in my uh, book, more recent book on um, mental health, poverty and social inclusion, I I find it 
the analogy of musical chairs works really well and to understand the different policies and how they intersect. And, and I know people are familiar with the game of musical chairs. Oh yeah. Played it lots as a kid. Yeah. 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 So the, um, the chairs represent housing that people at the lower socioeconomic bracket would need to access. So people who don't have a lot of money, those chairs that would be available within the community. The people circling are the people at that socioeconomic status that need to access uh, reasonably priced, affordable, appropriate chairs. So the difference between the two is going to be your homelessness. And then uh, also I use the analogy in musical chairs about the music and the transition points, uh, which we could circle back to. But transition points could be a number of different things. Discharge from hospital is one, but it could also be relationships break, break up, losing a job, children um, leaving home, uh, different different issues, uh, going to jail, uh, coming out of jail, uh, being evicted. There's many things that could be where the music stops and someone's more vulnerable. So when we think of the policy changes that were happening, up until like right around the time we were starting to notice this change, there'd been a huge change in housing in that it had been at the federal level and it had been downloaded to the provinces. Canada, by the way, is the only industrialized nation in the world that does not have it at the federal level. So it was downloaded for the same reason in our personal budgets. Probably many of us would like to ignore our housing costs because it's one of the biggest things in the budget. And it was a big thing in the federal budget because housing is very broad. It also, because that includes public housing as well as the homeless shelters, et cetera. So what happened, um, what the provinces didn't really want it. So contracts for new public housing were being cancelled. If, if the shovel wasn't in the ground, basically, it didn't go ahead. Uh, and we had a, a very marked decrease um, in the number of public housing units created each year. Uh, like we got down as, as low as a thousand across the entire country, which wouldn't even replace the housing stock that, you know, the housing doesn't last forever. That change in policy was huge. And if you don't have the public market, you have to rely on the private market. Well, we know people with any kind of mental illness, including substance use, are the most stigmatized group in society. So if you're counting on the private market, then this is a group that's going to be at a disadvantage. So some policies sometimes just favor one group over another to get the chairs faster. So that doesn't change the rate of homelessness. It just says, oh, this is someone we're comfortable being homeless, and this is someone we're not comfortable being homeless. I see. Well, very thorough overview. Thanks for uh, diving into that. I'm just thinking about getting these people into the homes and if they don't have any kind of support, they're probably less likely to break the the cycle of homelessness and, and try to get out of it entirely too. Well, certainly the longer that a person has been homeless, the harder it is to get them out of homelessness. In some ways, being homeless has... I mean, we sometimes talk about the teenage brain as being kind of in the moment, not thinking ahead. But when the person's homeless... They very much are caught in the present because there are such urgent and such basic needs that have to be dealt with right away. So, for example, where is my next meal going to come from? 
where am I going to sleep tonight? And who's that walking behind me? Are, are, are they going to hurt me? So when you're constantly by your circumstances being forced into the present, it's very hard to make to transition to, to think of uh, life changes. We did um, one study a few years ago. It was a randomized trial. I won't go into all the issues because I know you don't have a, a lot of time, but basically we were trying an intervention to prevent discharge into homelessness uh, that included access to a housing advocate and rapid access to first and last month's rent. And we only included people where it was their very first, they'd never been homeless in their life before. They had steady income, either Ontario Disability or Ontario Works, and it was a planned discharge. And we, because this was a new intervention, we thought, we'll just have 20 people. We'll see to what extent this works. We'll just follow them for six months for getting this extra support versus usual care when someone's at risk. They've lost their housing over the course of the hospitalization. We had to stop the study at 14 because it was like studying penicillin and syphilis. It, like, it was a real ethical dilemma, I got to tell you, because the intervention group was fine. The seven people that got the intervention were fine because their mental health problem was addressed because, uh, and it, this was literally a flip of the coin, keep in mind, there was no difference between the groups. So their mental health issue was addressed, their housing needs were met. So interestingly, four of the seven even got back to work. The other group did not fare so well, and that they were the ones that received usual care. Six of the seven, six months later, were still homeless. And these were people with no prior history of homelessness. The seventh person, because our study used housing status as a uh, outcome measure, we counted her as a success. I think you'd be hard pressed to call this a success uh, because she was recruited into the sex trade on the way into the homeless shelter. Uh-huh. Never been in the sex trade before, had a young child, uh, and six months later was still in the sex trade. But statistically, we counted her as a success because that our outcome measure wasn't recruited into the sex trade or not. It was housed mm-hmm. or not. And people in that group were saying, it's like my life was hanging by a thread. I got the wrong card. Like, And this is what happened. When I went back to the staff to talk about usual cuts, staff were in tears. They couldn't believe it. They said, well, they had an appointment for the next day. How, how could they not have made? And we actually kept all that sample because I do a lot of research with homelessness. I literally have feet on the street with my staff. So we, we tracked all of them. Nobody made a single appointment. So again, these were people that just by the flip of a coin were put in a situation where they're homeless and they could not even get themselves to an appointment the next day. You raise a, a good point that Canada is the only country in industrialized world that doesn't have the feds looking after housing. But I wonder, what is your assessment of Canada's national housing strategy? Uh, Like the national strategy does focus on housing first, and that's truly what is needed. What has to happen is it really needs to be fully, like, I, I think it's the plan is good. It's trickling out. And, and I appreciate uh, that we've had a few complications lately with uh, uh, COVID, etc. But we really need to be focusing on housing uh, as a solution. And part of the thing with housing first is recognizing that if somebody's making that trend, who has been homeless, particularly for a while, 
and they're making that transition from homeless to house, they do need supports. I've worked with a number of projects, like, and again, there's different subgroups, you can't overgeneralize. Because, you know, some groups, like, for example, youth can get themselves out of it more quickly, was our experience. But but quite often, I'll find people could be housed for a year before they finally even trust the fact that they're housed. Uh, very often, when someone's been more chronically homeless, when you first house them, they may they often want a balcony so they can sleep on the balcony. They sleep under the bed. They sleep in the closet. They keep a knapsack packed and at mm. the door. They don't even trust that this is going to last because they've been so much forced into the moment. Uh, so it, it takes, it takes time for them to, to reacclimatize to that new reality. But I find something about hitting that year point uh, when they start, okay, maybe this, this can be trusted. Then they start dealing with some of the other issues that they really need to deal with. COVID-19 in, in some ways has uh, worsened conditions for Canada's homeless. I've worked in this field for a few decades now, and I've never seen it so bad. Because resources are even more stretched, right? Yeah, a number. Yeah, there's there's so many things. Definitely resources are stretched, but it's many parts of the dynamic have changed. And, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, like I, the, a current study I have funded through the Public Health Agency of Canada, the overall purpose of the study is to try to come up with a more accurate way of understanding and knowing current methods totally, um, totally underestimated. Does anyone believe we only have 235,000 people in the entire country over the course of a year homeless, that only 25 to 35,000 people per night are homeless in the entire country? I, I, I like, uh, But it, it, it's challenging to figure out how many people are homeless. So anyway, we, we have some um, ways of looking at other data, including health data, but we also want to understand the contextual pieces. So myself and our team went to every province and territory. We went to 27 communities so that we could include smaller rural communities. And as I say, I, I have not seen it so bad. We weren't planning on in going to as many rural communities, but we actually had them reaching out practically begging us to come to some of these areas. We had areas that had never had a homeless problem in the past that had no homeless services because they had not had a homeless problem in the past. Wow, that's eye-opening. And and we're now struggling with it. And maybe the only community resource is like a community health center. Uh, So what are they supposed to do? Uh, And some of the things are certainly related to the pandemic that has made it worse across the country. One, the housing prices. We all know what's happened to housing prices. And in some of the smaller towns and rural communities, you're primarily... um, looking at home ownership and few rental units that would be available within the community. Some of those rental units would be purchased. Someone could have been there for a decade and we interviewed somebody, some people in that situation uh, could be converted into a different kind of housing or simply renovated and re-rented out in the present and the current tenants evicted. And then they're evicted into a community that has no, no homeless services. Their only choice is, you know, do they move to the next larger community where they really don't feel at home? Do they try to stick to their home community, which often means living in the rough? So there's some definitely some tough choices there. Also with the pandemic, our homeless shelters, like everyone else, had to deal 
with social distancing issues, Mm -hmm. which meant fewer people could fit in. So as more people were needing to get in, fewer people could get in. Plus, many people we talked to were concerned about going into the shelters. It's a form of congregate living. There's been multiple, multiple outbreaks of COVID in the shelters. Uh, so some people felt maybe that's not a safe w- place to go. And, and so, again, we, we, we found much more living on the street, encampments, um, living in the rough kinds of situations, both because of the overcrowded in the shelter and also because people were feeling it might actually be a safer alternative. It was a very difficult period for the sector. In the first couple of waves, there were supports such as where people could do things like temporary, more temporary housing, such as hotels. But in the later waves, that became less available in terms of the funding that came through federally. When you would see these people face to face or virtual face to face like you and I are right now, would you see sometimes the eyes of that of that boy that stayed in your basement way back when? Oh, uh, I, I saw I saw many eyes, uh, but yes, like, I, and I also know the um, the randomness of of the situation in terms of who got housing and who, and who didn't. Because I said it's just like the game of musical chairs. Sometimes someone happens to be standing mm-hmm. in front of the chair when the music stops, and sometimes they just happen to be a little bit too far away. Even people that you know, because we could only interview so many, we had people who we couldn't interview to come up and thank us for being there saying even though we couldn't be interviewed and we would love to have talked to talk to you just knowing somebody is knowing what's going on is so important oh that's that's special with uh how covid has exposed this that much more and 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 with the the numbers that you're citing uh, do you think in some ways the stigma of homelessness is starting to be broken a little bit in canada I think there's still stigma. I think we did definitely see some shifts. Um, I think there's still stigma in relation to mental illness and certainly in relation to substance use. And uh, there's still often a tendency to blame the victim. But what we did see that I found very encouraging in a number of communities was actually a yes in my backyard movement. Hmm. Uh, and and you would see movements in communities where they would recognize what was going on, that there had been a shift and were getting personally involved. In some cases, Victoria, for example, I actually had a web page where people who were interested in that, like a Facebook page, and different communities were, were being or, organized. But we saw similar things in different ways in, in different communities. We saw where people would notice that there were a number of people sleeping in their cars overnight, uh, where they took it upon themselves to actually leave them messages for them and organize it amongst the neighbors saying, hey, if you need to use the shower and have a cup of coffee, come to down to whatever address from this time to that time. They would plan it to do it safely so they'd have other neighbors present. Um, uh, you know, so like the person wouldn't be home alone, for example. Uh, but they offered them the use of their showers, a cup of coffee, mm. maybe a light breakfast. Um, I, I haven't seen that before where, where people would go out and put flyers on car windows. We found it in a few communities where this type of thing was happening, uh, where neighborhoods were seeing the problem and actually seeing people as people. Not dehumanizing them. Yeah. There's one church uh, in the area where I live and 
Uh, it was the culmination of an apartment fire and this hot real estate market, but they actually turned their parking lot into a trailer park and allowed people to, to live there for... But we had several yeah. churches that that we saw that were offering, you know, even to put a tent up in the backyard kind of thing. Uh, we saw a few examples or simply not getting rid of people in some cases. Uh, in one case, there was a church where somebody had crawled under the steps and it was a bit of a quandary, but they didn't call the police. They didn't do anything. And I think my understanding from talking to the person who had crawled under the steps is that they were starting some discussions as, as to to where to go from there. Where do you see the room to grow from faith-based organizations and churches in this whole discussion? Faith-based organizations have always um, been involved in this sector. When you look at who runs the homeless shelters, uh, they're often faith-based organizations, right? Mm-hmm. Salvation Army, for example, uh, in London Mission Services, uh, and and even our Indigenous shelter, um, Adelosa, our Indigenous organization is it's not a, a traditional faith, but it really it really is a, 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 it really relates to their spirituality in terms. So when you look at who does provide service, there there all often is that component. I think it's reasonable at times to expect faith-based communities to, to help, and, and it, it often is part of people's faith to, to do so. But I think we can't allow government to totally abdicate responsibility either, because it's one thing to be filling in some gaps and to, to do a bit more, but, that, but we shouldn't be expecting them to do everything. Sometimes there is government funding that is allocated for these faith-based organizations to do this kind of work. Yeah, like when I say, like Salvation Army being an example, got yeah. many. Like I say, the shelters I mentioned, they all do get funding, uh, but I think that that certainly is is a, a part of it. And certainly, when we talk to people about the services they access, it's clear that you know these different kinds of organizations do participate. Also, faith based uh, communities often um, uh, provide meal programs, for example often a huge issue for people. So yeah, there's certainly certainly a role there and it's a role that has been well taken up by the by the faith-based communities in terms of what the general public is doing in some communities like I said this yes in my backyard. I I think it, it may not be a formal organization but it's certainly ab- about their belief in people and the value of humanity. And so when I say that things need to be at the federal level, I, I, I wouldn't want to detract what, what can happen at the community level because there's still context matters, like individual community things and caring about your neighbor certainly matters. Uh, but I also think we need funding for these for the services on a broader level. Appreciate this, Cheryl. Thanks for the great work you're doing. And hopefully we can see some changes in the years ahead. Happy to do so. And if you want to read up on any of the studies that Cheryl has taken part in or anything related to our conversation, like Canada's housing strategy, you can do so over at davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. COVID-19 and the war in Ukraine have accelerated a worldwide hunger crisis. We'll consider why there is hope with enough food in the world to meet these needs and ultimately why we should care. 
Don't miss my conversation with Andy Harrington, Executive Director of the Canadian Food Grains Bank. If you look at the world at the moment, it, it almost wants to say to those that are poor, to those that are in hunger, hey, God has forgotten you. You know, it's, it's we don't care. And, and the Canadian Food Grains Bank and, and Christians are there to say that is not true. You're actually the center of our attention. God has not forgotten you. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.